more generally, I am hoping that this notion will live on, that uh, scientists really can make a difference in society. I hope the general public will feel that uh, we are a useful component in, in society, but also that scientists will see that what they do can make a big difference in the world, and it's demanded of us that it should make a difference sometimes. Not everything we do, but some things really should be put to good use. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. The outbreak of the new coronavirus has brought science and the scientists behind the studies into the limelight. There are many who have joined a global effort to provide more knowledge about the virus, and the scientists associated to SCAS are no exception. We therefore dedicate the first three episodes of this podcast to different aspects of the coronavirus pandemic. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this first episode I am talking to Ulf Landegren, professor in molecular medicine at Uppsala University. He is also responsible for the theme Measurable Man within the framework of the Natural Sciences program at SCAS, which we will hear more about a bit later. So welcome Ulf, we are very happy to have you here as our first guest. Could you say a few words about yourself? Okay, thank you very much. I'm happy to be invited here. Well, I'm a, <clears throat> I have a medical background and I am a professor of molecular medicine in Uppsala. Actually a retired professor, but I'm trying to pretend that that's not the case. I also have spent a lot of my career trying to take findings out of academia into industry. So that's been an element of my work. So we have seen an impressive uh, development of molecular methods over the last uh, few decades. I have been following this myself, especially as a student and PhD student, and later on as a science journalist. Uh, one example is the sequencing of the human genome, which is became possible and also more and more cheaper during the years. And with that also came a lot of associated techniques, molecular techniques um, that have revolutionized the studies in life sciences, really. And now in the past few months, we have witnessed how the scientific community has utilized these methods and tools to learn a lot more about the new coronavirus, which is called SARS-Coronavirus-2, and causes the disease COVID-19. And you also involved in this, you have recently started a new project to develop a test to detect antibodies for COVID-19 meaning that you then can test if somebody has had the disease. Can you tell us a little bit more about this project? As you have noticed, there's been uh, or is an ongoing mad scramble <clears throat> by the scientific community to try to contribute somehow. This is a worldwide crisis and uh, the scientific community really should step up and demonstrate what we can do. Myself, I hesitated a little before I got into this. As you said, we are interested in measuring the immune response uh, by people. However, there are already large numbers of such tests available, uh, readily developed, and uh, it's not so easy to add on to what has been done before. And that was the basis of my hesitation. However, as you probably know, one of the consequences of COVID-19 is that uh, patients... Uh, uh, suffer uh, what's referred to as a cytokine storm. <clears throat> they have their immune system runs amok and uh, creating a life-threatening situation. 
so uh, by immune response, uh, one can widen the concept a little bit. Uh, the current tests are measuring whether we have antibodies against the virus, and that's very helpful to tell if somebody is immune and may not be further uh, infected by uh, encountering patients with the disease. <clears throat> yeah, but uh, in terms of monitoring the progress of the disease, there are other aspects of the immune system that are also highly relevant. Our strategy has been to build on some things we have done in the past and also uh, one of the companies that have, spun, have been spun out from the lab. So we have developed uh, a technology to measure proteins in blood and uh, we've shown that uh, using very small aliquots of sample we can measure large numbers of features, many proteins in plasma. So far we've never targeted antibodies, but antibodies of course are highly relevant biomarkers, <clears throat> in this case biomarkers of immunity towards uh, the virus, but uh, they are also relevant for allergy and the autoimmunity to determine our vaccination status, do we have protection against tetanus and so forth. <laughs> Uh, so we will use this project as an uh, occasion to see if we can use the same method we've been measuring plasma proteins to also measure <coughs> antibody responses. But in so doing, we can, of course, also measure plasma proteins, the cytokines. So the idea with our test and what might set us apart is that we can take samples from patients and then measure not only whether they have immunity towards the virus, but also if they are mounting an immune response by other means, by releasing cytokines. And possibly also, I'm also interested in being able to measure the cellular composition of the blood sample, what leukocyte types are abundant in the sample, because that also gives you valuable information about the immune status. So we're not really competing for who has the fastest assay and the cheapest assay, but rather a more comprehensive view of the immune status of individuals. Yes, so we can measure several things in one go there, and that can be helpful for the diagnostics also in a, in a broader sense. Yeah, I, I think if you only want to know if people have antibodies against the virus, then probably our assay will not be the best choice. But if you want to monitor the status of the patient, is the patient infected? Does the patient have an immune response ongoing? And about the status of cytokines, there's a lot of work along these lines going on right now where people are characterizing the immune characteristics of these patients. So we're hoping to just build on that knowledge. We're not going to generate that information ourselves, but it's being rapidly published what are the telltale signs of an ongoing immune response and maybe the response that is risking to go awry. So how does it work if I think I've had the disease and now I really want to know, how do I do the test? I, I get people to come to my office and ask me, can I test them? And I, I can't because uh, our assays are not up and running and there are others. Uh, and I, I think that's a really important need now for the general public to have uh, access to such tests and they are available. So I'm hoping that they will be made available. For our test, we have shown previously that uh, we can measure the plasma proteins in a dried spot of blood. So you prick your finger, put it on a piece of paper, you can send it into a hospital or some testing agency, and then you take a little piece of that paper, the drop spot, just a square millimeter is enough, and stick it in the tube together with some reagents. And uh, then you have this um, detection reaction that we have invented. It's something we called proximity ligation assays or the version that the company holding proteomics is pursuing they call it proximity extension assays 
And then the effect of the, result, uh, the assay is that you generate little DNA strands that represent the detected proteins. So uh, after that, you, your task is to measure how many of these DNA molecules have formed. And that you can do by very cheap and efficient means by PCR or by DNA sequencing. So I actually don't have to go to the doctor or to the hospital to get the test. No, that's one of the beauties. Uh, so uh, as long as you know how to prick your own finger, which is very easy, it's a spring-loaded device. Uh, so you just hold it to your finger and uh, uh, press the button and uh, a drop of blood comes out. You put it on the piece of paper, let it dry, and uh, then you just stick it in an envelope and you can send it by regular mail. If we think about the immune system, when you have an infection, the immune system first reacts with antibodies of the type IgM and then IgG, so you can detect both of those in the same sample then? Yeah, we want to take advantage of the possibility of performing many assays by measuring, as you say, both the early IgM response and the later IgG response, but also to measure response against different uh, proteins of the virus, mainly the spike protein, which probably is a protein where antibodies can be protective, but there are also internal proteins that will mount immune responses and can support the diagnosis. What about the specificity of this kind of test? How small amounts can you detect and how how secure is it? If I get the result back, you have had um, COVID-19, maybe I start behaving in a certain way, I think I can go and see my parents who are 70 plus and mm -hmm. so on. So how sure can I be that this result is correct? Yeah, it's too early to say how uh, specific our assays can be. The regular assay, when we measure plasma proteins, uh, our assays tend to be very specific and the trick we use which is common in the business is to only detect uh, proteins when two antibodies agree that the protein is present so the, the antibodies may cross-react somewhat but uh, as long as they don't cross-react for the same irrelevant protein you only detect the correct protein in the case of immune response you're down to just one interaction the antibody from the patient and the antigen from the virus so we can't do so much about improving the specificity and therefore we are in the same situation as everybody else so i'm not sure if we will be able to improve on the specificity but as i said by measuring uh, responses against several antigens the risk that uh, you get false results should decrease so i'm hoping that the multiplexing will improve specificity there is at least at the moment, a very intense discussion about testing in general, both testing if you actually have the disease at the moment and also if you've had it. How should the tests in general, how should they be used and who should be tested? I think that for, for a disease like COVID-19, it's probably better the more the better. You really want to know if you have the virus. There's not so much you can do about avoiding the complications at this stage, but hopefully we'll learn more about that as we go along. But most importantly, you, of course, learn that you are infectious and that you need to stay away from people who are vulnerable. So it's very important to know if you have the virus infection. In terms of immune response, that's also, of course, extremely valuable information. So far, it appears that once you have an immune response, you're not susceptible, at least for some length of time. We don't know yet how long uh, long term the immune response will last and how long the protection is. There were some early reports that, of people who had been diagnosed with disease coming down with a second round, but it doesn't seem to hold up. So as far as we know, once infected and uh, cured from the disease, you are not susceptible to infection again. With your kind of test where you can see several things at the same time, could you also follow a patient over time and see how 
certain factors in the immune system vary and learn more from that about the nature of the disease? Right. So, as a research tool, you mean? <coughs> right. And, and as I said, this is ongoing right now. The, the, the company uh, commercializing a commercial version of these tests. Many of their customers are people interested in measuring the immune response. I don't think we will jump in there. Other people are already fast in accumulating information, but uh, hopefully we can take advantage of their findings. But the one advantage, you know, if you measure genetic variation, then it's kind of boring. Once you measure the person, then you know what that person is like for, for the rest of their life. With protein, it's highly variable over time. And we all have our own levels of standard proteins that are normal for us, but not maybe from uh, somebody else. So by just taking a snapshot, you don't learn so much. My belief is that going forward, we will be measuring proteins continuously. We'll measure daily and, or at least weekly or at some interval particularly if you prescribe a therapy to a patient, then doctors will want to know day by day how the patient is responding. Can we keep on giving this drug or do we need to change? So that was the real motivation for us to look into this dried blood spot business. Normally, if you're going to use draw blood from a cubital vein, there's a cost of around 1,000 crowns or so. You need to talk to a nurse and the blood has to be spun down afterwards and frozen and so forth so and the patient has to go to see the nurse all that can be avoided if you can just prick your finger so i think this will allow us to monitor disease processes uh, covid19 but also many other diseases over time when do you hope to present the first results of your work yeah, I, I was interviewed for the university and I noticed I was extremely conservative. So I, I said I was hoping we would have results by the end of the year. And I think everybody's hoping that by that time, nobody will worry about the, the virus anymore. The latter may not be the case. Uh, I think there's a risk that the virus will still be with us and be a problem. But I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we will have results long before then. We, we have the first early results now saying that the assay in principle works, but it's uh, still it's only been done in very idealized cases and not really under real-life circumstances. So uh, that will have to be determined. I don't think I will allow you to pin me down to a date, but uh, we're hoping to have the assays ready a little sooner than maybe I indicated before. But things do move quite fast these days, I think. Yeah, but, but there's another side to this, and <clears throat> I think academic labs are lousy at making assays available or therapies even more so. So if for this to become widely available, I think it's going to be necessary to have a commercial outlet. They are much better at standardizing production and guaranteeing quality and so forth. Our attempt will be to demonstrate that in principle this is possible, and then I'm hoping that others can take over. Yeah, this can be a good point to talk about commercialization of uh, academic findings. So you worry into this, you will show that it works and then somebody else takes over. So how should this be done? How can academic research contribute to value for society? This morning I gave a talk which I titled uh, Universities as Machines to Build Companies. And of course, one can exaggerate that. I'm not saying that all university research should lead to commercial enterprises. However, I, I think that when academic results are possible to take advantage of, then it can only be done outside of academia in, in companies. And uh, I, I think maybe we are, as an academic community, we're not uh, sufficiently aware of that. I, I think it's being asked of us by politicians and by the general public that uh, what we do will make a difference in the real world. 
And I think that necessitates collaboration with companies for at least some things. Of course, we will also generate knowledge that is uh, very important and valuable in other ways where we want to know about ancient history and astronomy and things that may be difficult to commercialize. And that's very valid research. But when it's possible, when you're, if you're working on medical problems, diagnostics or therapeutics, then it's kind of nonchalant, I think, not even to worry about whether it can be put to use. But as an academic researcher, you're also a little bit in between shares there because the research funding organizations, they want you to publish a paper or the, the funding system works that you are being rewarded for your academic findings that have been published and reviewed by others. And once you have done that, you can't take a patent. So you're a little bit torn between two systems here. What should be done to improve the situation? Yeah. What you just described is not a main problem in my view. It's relatively harmonious to both file for patent and write scientific papers. Filing for patents means that you publicize your findings. That's the whole point of patenting, that others will know what you did instead of keeping things trade secret. And so it's just a matter of in what order you do things. My favorite topic, if I can go into that, is another one, namely that in Sweden we're relatively unique in having a very strange system where even when I just have an idea that something might be a good project, then I apply for money from a governmental funding body. And by Swedish law, that means that I've now publicized my idea even before I was funded. And even if I'm not getting my funding afterwards, still the, that idea is now spoiled and can no longer be patent protected. And as I said earlier, it's very difficult to see how academic success can be put to any use unless a company can deal with it but the company will need to have some patent protection because otherwise there will be other companies that can just uh, take advantage of uh, the first company's findings and then uh, compete in the market i'm a little irritated and I, i think actually it says something about the swedish academic system that nobody worries about this we academic scientists don't see it as their task to solve real world problems if we did then we would obviously recognize this as a big obstacle so I, i'm rather disappointed i've been trying to create some activities around this i've been talking to the previous uh, minister of science who promised to do something about it then did not live up to her promises. <laughs> that's something that's relatively dear to my heart. Actually, right now, there is an opportunity to apply for funding from the Research Council for COVID-19 research. And I happen to have an idea that I thought might be quite useful, but I'm not going to submit a grant application because then that idea could not be protected. So I'm, I'm not able to apply for that grant. I don't think the idea was so good, so there's no great damage done. But if I had a fantastic idea, then I either I'd have to write a very vague application saying, I have this fantastic idea, please give me some money. Or I would have to give up the opportunity to patent protect it. Or possibly you can squeeze in a patent application, but that's getting harder because uh, patenting agencies want to see more proof. So they really want you to have done your experiments. So how do you do then if you have the fantastic idea How do you get funding for that if yeah. you can't go via the government research organization? Uh, this is actually a general problem of, of science that we often do research backwards. We apply for money for something we already did. We publish that and uh, use the money to do the next study, which allows us to apply for money for the next project. So you're working in reverse, as it were, which is relatively okay for a senior scientist who is up and running. For a young scientist, it makes it very difficult. So it's very impractical. And the, the problem is not only tied to this business about offentlighetslagstiftning, this rule in Sweden that governmental money has to be 
seen publicly in general. It's a problem that uh, granting agencies often want to see uh, so strong evidence that your project will work, that in fact you, you're better off if you did the project before you got you applied for money. So what would you like to change? What did you say to the former minister for research? Well, regarding this business about what becomes public, I believe I actually was working together with one of the law professors here at Uppsala University. And my impression is that it wouldn't require much of a change. I, I think it's uh, the principle we have here in Sweden that public officials' information is accessible and anybody can walk up to politicians and ask for their emails. I think that's a fantastic phenomenon we have, which I don't want to uh, harm. And it's one of the basic laws of Sweden, Grundlaga. It would be very difficult to change and we shouldn't do it. However, there are exceptions already. In medicine, we don't have to disclose the identity of patients we're treating and, and so forth. So, of course, we can exclude information. And I think it would be a relatively straightforward matter to just say that grant applications are not public until at some time. Of course, there is, it's important that the public has a chance to evaluate are we funding good science, but that can be done after the event, as it were. By far, not all applications get the funding anyway. So. No, no, no. Some 10, 20% or so, I guess, no. In your field now, and maybe particularly in this race now for finding answers to the new coronavirus and how it behaves, how about collaboration and competition there? What can you do together? And also, what should you rather keep to yourself? Well, this is always a, a tricky matter in science, but I'm sensing that there is an increased readiness to work together. Here in Sweden, we have the Science for Life Laboratory, SciLife Lab, and with support from the Wallenberg Foundation, they are now awarding grants. I received one of them. But one of the preconditions, I think, is that we need to work together and not just duplicate efforts. And of course, there are many aspects. Everybody needs some reagents and they need some samples and uh, information that may not be accessible to all. So uh, Silaf Lab is now trying to coordinate that. So in that sense, it's an uh, unusual community effort, uh, which I'm very gratified to see. However, scientists are individuals and they want to promote their own careers and uh, some even want to make money. There is still this element of competition and trying to get there first, of course. And at SciLife Lab, you also share an infrastructure because uh, for a lot of this analysis, you need quite advanced equipment that not every research group can just buy by themselves. No, this is a trend in in biology that biology is becoming more like physics has been for some time, that it requires exclusive equipment that not everybody can afford or even know how to use. And SciLife Lab is a response to that. So we now make sure that all scientists in Sweden have some minimal level of t technical resources to, to draw from. But SciLife Lab could also be a, a vehicle to spread. That once we have successful techniques, then maybe SciLife Lab would be the second best to a company uh, making the tests available. In the end, I think it really is something for companies to do to make these tests available. The SciLife Lab may spread it on a smaller scale at least and make new techniques br more broadly available. That's very promising. It's very nice to have them so close by. Talking about research conditions, I was also thinking about the matter of open science, that you share data, and not only the data you publish in a paper, but also the raw data that you collect along the way, your methods and everything, that you make that publicly available. That has been a trend for some years and it's also been discussed a lot in the scientific community. And in what way do you think this can be important in, in this ongoing situation that we see now? This is also a consequence of the, the trend that uh, 
biologists growing up to be a big science. So we have very powerful techniques now where we can accumulate fantastic amounts of data sequence information, for instance, or protein information. And if you have one particular problem in mind, then along the way, you will probably find a lot of other things that are not relevant for the question you're asking, but that could be useful for somebody else. So it's a great waste if everybody has to look through hordes of data and find what they're after and throw out all the rest. So there is a trend now to make information more generally available. The Human Genome Project set this off. As you may know, there were two competing trends. There was a commercial effort led by Celera and uh, then a public effort where, where the main players were the US and um, Britain at the time. Celera had the business idea that they would own information that would not be accessible to others, uh, whereas uh, there was a very strong effort then to outcompete them with governmental money. Uh, this ended up being a that's actually illegal to do. The uh, government cannot compete with companies. So Celera uh, threatened to sue the, uh, the United States. Um, um, but the, the end result anyway was that the information was uh, put in the public domain. The, the rule, I think, was that as soon as you had assembled, you, you know, you sequence in stretches of maybe a few hundred, 800 nucleotides or so, and then you assemble it into larger pieces. And as, as soon as you had segments of a couple of KB, then that information was just put out uh, on the web without anybody having a chance to interpret what it meant. One of the consequences was there was a company in Salt Lake City studying breast cancer. They had uh, patients with uh, breast cancer mapping to where the genes causing increased risk for breast cancer mapped to certain regions. So they could just follow the Sanger Center in Britain as they were putting out their daily KB. So DNA uh, marching into the region that uh, the company knew would be the location of uh, the gene causing the bracket, no, one or two gene. And uh, then once uh, they found that change, they just uh, went ahead and patented it based on just uh, looking at the data on the web. And this caused some controversy. And they then very aggressively tried to prevent uh, hospitals around the world using this information without paying them. So the, that caused some conflict. And the, the, there certainly are conflicts around this. But I think the Genome Project set the stage for a new phase where we make a lot of the information available. Since we know that... Uh, Nature decided to keep this information. Somehow this genetic information seems to serve some purpose, although we don't understand it. So we might as well save it and make it available and maybe somebody else can figure out what it means. Yeah, and I think this project also set the stage for another type of science to just do things and not really have a hypothesis, but just right. do large-scale analysis of something and collect the data and then see what can we do with it. Yeah, that's another of my hobby horses and a war I've been waging. Karl Popper, the philosopher of science, was arguing very strongly that uh, we can't just randomly do research and accommodate our findings or our, our theories according to the findings. We have to be very stringently formulate hypotheses and then either we confirm the hypothesis or at least uh, they live to fight another day, the, our ideas, or we can falsify them and say that we no longer need to maintain that hypothesis. And I think at the time, that was a very important step. He was particularly opposed to Freudianism. This was in Vienna and uh, different schools fighting. So at the time, I think it was uh, uh, very well motivated. But unfortunately, uh, governmental uh, funding bodies have, I think, gone to an extreme and saying that the only good science is science where you have a hypothesis, which you either falsify or not. 
and that's certainly true for some types of research, but it, it's less and less true. Uh, and the two exceptions that I <coughs> point out are uh, technology development, which uh, nobody can deny is extremely important for the progress of science, uh, but which doesn't follow any particular hypothesis of what nature is like. And also this large-scale accumulation of basic information, like what is the genome of large organism or so, that, that doesn't really, uh, you don't have the hypothesis that the organism has a, a genome. We know that. But the exact composition uh, is still valuable and important. Uh, so um, actually, I, I think I may have had a small role in forcing the Wallenberg Foundation from changing. They used to demand in order to be funded, you had to have a very clear hypothesis. And I asked Usunquist to do something about this, uh, the board, and I, I noticed that uh, they no longer have that requirement. We need this also, these efforts to just look at, into things and collect a lot of data, a lot of knowledge about something, and then, then we see where it leads us. Yeah, well, if you look at Nobel Prizes, you can sort of figure out which ones were based on hypotheses and which were not. And I think many of the major scientific findings did not have any hypothesis behind them. That's very interesting. So we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Which possibilities and risks do you see for science and scientific results? I'm thinking, for example, now the need to get very fast results. And, mm. uh, yes. yeah, this is a very <clears throat> interesting trend and something I've never experienced in my career. And now fantastic amounts of data are very rapidly generated and with very little delay, they are made publicly available, which is, I think, to a large extent, a good thing, but it uh, overrides uh, the protective mechanism we have in place. Otherwise, the peer review to say that this is reasonable conclusions from this paper. Uh, now, a lot of information becomes available a lot of it probably isn't very reliable and, and can cause problems. We'll see how this pans out. I, I think physics has lived in this world for longer. They have had the, their physics archive where you put out your findings and only later, I mean, if the finding is of little interest, then maybe nobody will find out that it was wrong. But if it is of interest, then there will be sufficient interest to really scrutinize it. And I, we're hoping that the same thing will happen now in biology and medicine. Since uh, several years, we now have the bioarchive where people are depositing their preliminary data. It's also a way of, of course, establishing primacy and saying, we got there first. And you don't have to wait for journals to approve of the paper. You can show that you generated this data before anybody else. We think also not only the need for fast results, but also the need for giving advice from experts to, for example, politicians or people making guidelines. What are the challenges there? It's a good time for science to demonstrate what we can do for society and the, the important role we can have. Uh, and that's why I think many of us step up now and really try to contribute, even at the expense of um, pursuing projects that we may be more interested in. There may be also a slight risk of uh, people claiming knowledge that they don't really have and uh, launching uh, hypotheses. I saw a little interview with Don Larhammer, current presses of the Swedish Academy of Science, who's very interested in, in fake science and, and uh, homeopathy and things like that. And, and he was complaining about the emergence of lots of false therapies. There's such a uh, desperate demand for cures and therapies that many people will involve themselves in 
advertising things that don't really hold up. And there may be also economic motivation for this. So there is this risk. And I think it's important for scientists to really think carefully when they really have something to add to a discussion and when they just want some time in the limelight. I've uh, said no to some interviews where I felt I really had nothing much to add to the question they wanted to discuss. Yeah, it was quite soon after the outbreak of the pandemic was also talking about outbreak of an infodemic that Mm. people give wrong information or misunderstand. There are a lot of things circulating around. One part being maybe scientists talking about areas outside of their expertise, but also media interpreting Uh, the statements in a certain way. No, that certainly is a problem. The positive side of this is that I think the public now really has access to the very latest findings. It's very difficult for a scientist to claim to have knowledge that uh, is not accessible to the man on the street because information travels very fast. Some of it, of course, is less reliable. What about after this pandemic? What can you, in the scientific community, what can you take with you, so to say, to life after the coronavirus? Well, one obvious consequence uh, is what many scientists have been saying for a long time, that this was to be expected. We have uh, known for a long time that uh, there will be pandemics. I think we got lucky with SARS which never really reached us, but it could easily have become as serious as this one. And we know that there will be influenza epidemics that are more lethal than the regular ones. So that will be one obvious consequence that we probably will have a better preparedness for both uh, mouth shields, but uh, but also for research so that we more quickly can uh, launch vaccination campaigns and so forth. More generally, I am hoping that this notion will live on, that uh, scientists really can make a difference in society. I hope the general public will feel that uh, we are a useful component in, in society, but also that scientists will see that what they do can make a big difference in the world. And it's demanded of us that it should make a difference sometimes. Not everything we do, not everything has to be understandable by the general public, but some things really should be put to good use. It was amazing when so many scientists jumped on these different projects. I thought, and one thought I had was like, at least when I was young and wanted to become a scientist, I mean, there's always this thought of saving the world. And now is the time when you can really do it if, you, if you're in this field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's an yeah, interesting time, but uh, mm. a desperate time. What type of research do we need in the future and what projects should we invest in? Or should the government invest in yeah. <clears throat> very broad question who... i guess some of it we touched upon before uh, since my work is on technology development i think one mustn't overlook the importance of technology but i certainly wouldn't say that everybody should spend their time developing technology so, um, but it has to be recognized as a, uh, an important part of the uh, research enterprise which i guess it is You're asking what research should be funded, and I I think that's impossible. I I really want to stress that it it remains extremely important for science to live up to many expectations. And of course, the humanities and the social science are extremely important and well-motivated. So it's important that not everything is motivated by the possibility of building companies or curing disease. I'm also thinking a bit forward here. There has been talking about the green recovery for the economy. Do you have any input on that? That's an important and interesting question. So um, 
we've seen a tr- dramatic decrease in uh, carbon dioxide emission, the, some 8% decrease. It's the largest decrease ever measured by man since we started using carbonic fuels. It actually is still is not enough to live up to the Paris Accord. So we, we need to decrease it further. Uh, but it is in some ways a lucky situation in that one respect, uh, despite all the tragedy around the virus infection. So there, there is an increasing notion now that uh, we should somehow take advantage of this and not, not just return to business as usual or even worse in desperation to uh, get the industrial wheels rolling again, completely forget about uh, the need to protect the environment. So there, there's now a fair amount of work in this direction. The European Academy Scientific Advisory Council, which is composed of representatives of the science academies around Europe, they released a statement as of today. So you can go to the EASAC website and look at their statement, which is about green recovery and how we can take advantage of this situation and try to rebuild society on a more sustainable format. I'm also a member of the board of uh, the agency MISTRA, the Environmental Strategic Research Foundation, and I've been asked to say a few words about green recovery in that context also. That whole agency is focused on environmental research and uh, they see the need now to orient themselves after this COVID pandemic. How, How can we take advantage of uh, the situation and build upon that. Björn Wittok, the former principal of SCAS, was one of the persons who initiated the newly launched Natural Sciences Program. And this is aimed at cutting-edge research in the natural sciences as well as building a bridge between these and the humanities and the social sciences. Bosunqvist, the former vice-chancellor of Uppsala University, was also involved in creating this program. And now you, Ulf, you are one of the scientists responsible for the theme Measurable Man. So shall we talk a little bit more about your connection to SCAS, the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study? Four of us uh, were asked to write chapters for a grant application to the Wallenberg Foundation and the Person Person Foundation. So there's one program now on extrasolar planet, which of course became even more topical with the Nobel Prize. And we also have one on uh, brain and consciousness and very important problems, uh, deep and fundamental problems, and on theoretical biology. And um, I wrote one uh, part, one fourth of the application, which I labeled <coughs> Measurable Man. I think actually Ulf Pettersson was the person who came up with that term. He's pointed that out to me. I shouldn't take credit. I think it's a great title. My whole career has been devoted to trying to measure things about people, genetic composition and protein composition and what cells we have and so forth. And of course, these things tell us a lot, uh, increasingly more and more about what we are and what kinds of diseases we are susceptible to, but maybe also things like personality and traits that are very important and fundamental and deep uh, in our personalities can now be measured by molecular means. I felt that it would be sensible to have a program to somehow consider what what the consequences will be of this increased testing that I see. I I mentioned the possibility of measuring dried blood spots where we could measure people on a very regular basis, how they feel from one day to the next. Uh, So there are questions about who should have access to this information and can it be abused in various ways. Will it lead to a more scientifically founded racism where we really have opinions about who's a promising person for a certain career and who is not? So there are many uh, risks. 
I think in writing this application, I somewhat somehow misunderstood my task, though, because uh, I think what was asked of me was not really to. I thought of it more as of a, as a discussion about what could be the consequences of increased measurement, something that maybe the social sciences and the humanities should devote time to to monitor this development in the natural science and the medicine. But the program now is really aimed not only to worry about what the consequences will be, but actually t- try to promote this development and <clears throat> make sure that we do good things and that we learn a lot. Uh, most of us, I think, uh, expect very good things to come out of uh, this type of research. We can cure diseases and <clears throat> help people, but it could also be abused in various ways. So the Measurable Man program, I, I think, is devoted to actually promoting increased knowledge about people while avoiding the ill effects that may arise. This discussion about how one could use the information in in a not so good way or in a negative way, I mean, this has been ongoing, at least since I was a student. Mm-hmm. Uh, people talking about genetic tests, how maybe insurance companies could use the information from genetic tests to say we won't insure you or, or something like that. So is this a discussion, an old discussion in a new format or with a, um, like with a new twist? It is a variant of what we have been thinking about for a long time, but of course it becomes much more acute now that we very easily, from a strand of hair, we can determine the whole genome of an individual and uh, whatever information we are able to decipher there, we can now obtain very readily. The identity of the individual certainly is very possible to trace just by finding a rare random (coughs) sample of uh, uh, human tissue you have a very good chance of figuring out who that person was, which is valuable at the crime scene, but uh, maybe we don't want that to happen too often. So we're now living in this situation that we worried about before, where lots of information can be gotten very readily. Overall, I think uh, we have not uh, experienced a very disturbing development. I think it's manageable. We we now have some rules uh, what kind of information can be shared some even feel that we are having too stringent rules the gdpr reform here where we keep track of people's individualities has created some problems in research cooperation between the continents because uh, europe is more stringent than other continents and therefore it's difficult for us to send samples across the seas labs and conversely but overall i I think we are monitoring this and I, i right now i'm not alarmed i Possibly the development we see in China is a little bit more worrisome. Uh, Maybe other countries also have taken the COVID pandemic as an excuse to monitor people uh, very closely. And uh, once they have built that capability, they may not let go of it so readily. I'm thinking about testing, genetic testing, for example. A lot of people are interested in their ancestry or you can do these commercial tests to see where your family come from to find relatives or if you have um, an increased risk for some diseases or something how should we think about these kind of tests yeah. and measurements that we can do and that many people do just because they are interested well as i was saying to somebody if you are a serial killer you probably should try to dissuade your relatives from taking one of these tests now a number of crimes have been 
resolved uh, because relatives of people who had committed uh, crimes uh, happened to enter their data. If you ask for get your genome sequenced, then that doesn't automatically mean that that information is public. However, there are public databases where you can enter once you have that information in hand. You can donate it to some of these uh, websites that allow you to find relatives. And uh, the police has recognized this as an opportunity and uh, several uh, cases have now been resolved. Uh, people who uh, committed crimes uh, many decades ago have been convicted of crimes because of findings like this. I worry a little bit about that because, of course, it's very gratifying that you find the guilty party, but it will probably also scare people from taking advantage of sequencing and sharing genetic information. So I, I haven't seen a backlash yet, but I would imagine that people are having second thoughts, particularly if your line of trade is criminal, then obviously it would be very unwise to deposit your genomic information. Uppsala also has sad history, like there was the Institute for Grace here. Right. Is this something that you as scientists in genetics, is that something you discuss and put into current uh, perspective? Yeah, I, I think in many ways our research is always influenced by what has gone before. I often advertise proud history in Uppsala of measuring proteins and other things, T.S. Wedberg and Arne Tiselius and other major figures that have laid the foundation for an ongoing activity in, in Sweden. But we also have this sad history of racial biology which was built on very poor science. So this is certainly is a problem. I sometimes have a little conflict with my dear colleague Ulf Pettersson, who has been very much opposed to the concept of racism. Of course, I, I think the, the, the division of people into races has been very poorly scientifically substantiated and uh, really stupid. However, nobody would do an exercise to map a disease gene where everybody who had the disease were Caucasians and everybody who uh, were controls were Chinese because you'd only end up with a lot of the genetic polymorphisms that distinguish these groups of people. So we can't ignore the fact that we are genetically different. It's very obvious when we look at each other. And I guess one One question is, how deep does this uh, difference run? Does it affect things that we care about? I, I think it's uh, very clear that um, your chance of being an elite runner for long distance is much better if you're from Eastern Africa. And uh, if you're running short distances, then probably West Africa is where you should be. But the question is, does this also cover other human traits? Uh, and that is uh, one of the things that I wanted to anticipate and measure man. Uh, are we prepared for finding differences that uh, mean a lot to us and that maybe influence choice of career beyond sports? And how, how will we deal with that if we uncover it? Or can we suppress that information and just ignore it? I, I think the latter is not so feasible anymore. I think we will come across a lot of information that we may not always have desired. I'm also thinking about the current situation with the coronavirus uh, pandemic People who haven't gone through the disease, they are potentially dangerous because mm. they can be infecting other people. Yeah. And do you need a little passport to travel to other countries to show I'm clean? Or uh, or maybe even all of us Swedes are, are persona non grata now, not welcome in other countries. This, of course, is not a genetic trait, uh, but it is a trait, a molecular trait that we can distinguish people according to. No, I, I think that's a good example of a problem that we are facing and uh, there's really no easy way around it. If you have your passport says that you have had coronavirus, then probably you're a safer person to say hello to.
So you you are a molecular biologist, but now in this project you will work together with the scientists from from the social sciences and humanities. And what way can they contribute to these discussions? I think they have a lot to offer. I, I must say we haven't really taken advantage of that yet, and I, I'm a little disappointed at myself for my involvement. I think the Measurable Man program is a very important one, and I would like to be more active. And, and particularly, I, I think SCAS is a very good context for this because of its uh, premier so, social science and humanities, and I very much approve of the idea of bringing the natural sciences in but so far the marriage may not have happened completely. We have some ways to go there, I think. So what do you envision? COVID, again, illustrates this very well because it has a medical and biological side and it has a societal side <clears throat> where we are damaging industries and putting people out of job. And you can't really only focus on one aspect. You have to combine uh, the molecular characteristics, uh, immune status <clears throat> in the population uh, with the damage you can do to society by one or another policy. And similarly, I, I think for measurement man, the, there is a fantastic opportunity to work between the humanities and the social sciences and the natural sciences. So as I, I look forward to this contact, but uh, I guess I've been a little too focused on my own work to fully take advantage of the opportunity that SCAS presents. You're a senior professor. Uh, if you could make a wish for the future, for the next generation, how they should work as scientists, what would you really like to see? I think whether they like it or not, they would put, be put under increased pressure to look at what their science can do for society, if that is relevant. For some science, it's not. But when it's possible, then I think uh, we will probably be criticized if we don't try to take it further. So I think young scientists will be well advised to think about how their findings can apply to the real world. In general, I think there is a possible positive feedback loop where new findings can sometimes give rise to innovations that may be commercialized and they may turn into products and some of those products may put you in a better position to make the next scientific breakthrough, which again may generate new findings. I think the trick will be to try to have this wheel rolling where things feed into each other and you have positive feedback. I think we should try to build academic research where that is applicable, where you create these positive feedback loops. And, and I think these wheels can keep on rolling for quite some time. I would claim that Uppsala University is still in the natural sciences and biology in particular, is still benefiting from things that happened maybe 50 or 70 years ago, which has given rise to a mindset and the competence that we have been able to build upon. Thank you very much for coming here and talking to us. Thank you. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. We hope you enjoyed this episode and would be more than happy if you can help us spread the news about this new podcast. For the next episode, we have invited Sverke Selin, Professor in Environmental Humanities at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. From August, he will also be associated to SCAS as a long-term fellow. Sverke Selin will talk about the consequences of the coronavirus pandemic for society. We hope that you want to listen again. Bye for now. <laughs>